welcome back to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes, look under Not the Public Podcast, and subscribe. We're also available on a number of your other favorite platforms. It may be the most remarkable season ever in North American pro team sports. The Vegas Golden Knights of the NHL are into the Western Conference Finals against Winnipeg. I think it's fair to say no expansion team in any league has ever done this in their first year. Typically, leagues impose rules for expansion drafts that are meant to impoverish the new um, candidates for play. Some of the most awful teams in history have been expansion clubs, but the Vegas experience has been different. The NHL set up rules that allowed the Golden Knights to stock themselves with players such as William Carlson, who scored 40 goals, and goalie Marc-Andre Fleury, who's slamming the door on opponents this spring. One of the people responsible for helping draft the NHL's expansion draft philosophy is my old friend Lawrence Gilman. Lawrence has been in management of the Winnipeg Jets, the Phoenix Coyotes, the Vancouver Canucks, and he's now working on the dark side doing radio in Vancouver. We've invited him to join the full count to talk about those nights, the current playoff picture, and the state of play in the NHL. But I'd be remiss if I didn't ask a Winnipeg boy what he thinks about the Jets. Uh, do you work for the Jets when they left and moved to Phoenix? What do you think about the Jets facing the Knights in the in the Western Final? Well, as a as a Winnipegger and as a former Winnipeg Jet employee, I couldn't be more excited uh, about the prospect of the of the Jets getting to the conference final and. I don't see any reason why they couldn't win the Stanley Cup. And if that happens, my hometown is going to be insane in the membrane, as the expression goes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's exciting to see. And there's no, I don't think there's any more Canadian city in Canada than Winnipeg. And uh, to see them get rewarded this way after all of the, the heartache, and you know it better than anybody else. You were there when you saw the moving vans go. Uh, you don't understand the heartbreak in the city and all that. So, uh, yeah, it's it's great. And, and uh, yeah, that's that's where my that's where I think they're the team to beat at the moment. But what does that matter, right? Well, they're well-constructed. They're deep up front. They've got a great defense, and they've got world-class goaltending. I mean, those are all the attributes you need to be a championship team. But, you know, when you get this far, anything can happen. And, and obviously, Las Vegas is a well-constructed. Vegas is a well-constructed team as are the Washington Capitals and Tampa Bay. So things have to go your way, you know, throughout from this point forward. But I don't see any reason why there couldn't be a Stanley Cup parade in Winnipeg. Just for our purposes here today, tell us what, you, what your position was, what you contributed to, this, to the expansion draft uh, in terms of your research and what you did for the NHL. Well, I was part of a, of a very small committee uh, that, that was uh, charged with... Um, with producing the, the expansion draft regulations, modeling uh, how the expansion draft would go, and tweaking the process along the way. It was uh, incredibly fascinating. Uh, I, I received a, a call from Bill Daly, deputy commissioner, asking me to participate in this. They, they wanted someone who had experience working for an NHL team. So I took, uh, it took a number of months to do. Actually, it was, uh, it was really almost a year uh, but it was fascinating work, and along the way, the rules got tweaked uh, a, a number of times. And uh, you know, once it was over, I, I did some consulting as well for for Las Vegas or for Vegas. I spent some time with George McPhee and his inner circle, and gave them uh, you know my impressions of, of how how this draft. And it wasn't a, I told him it wasn't a draft. It was more of an expansion harvest event because <laughs> they were the only team that was going to be uh, getting players and assets from 
the other remaining teams. It's not like the last time the NHL expanded, you had an actual draft, which Minnesota and Columbus participated in. This time around, if uh, McPhee and crew were able to plan their moves accordingly, they could harvest every single asset that they wanted. And, you know, from my perspective, they did just that. Uh, you mentioned uh, previous expansion drafts, and, and I noted in the intro that we've had some monumentally bad teams come out of those out of those drafts. What was the philosophy the NHL expressed to you people about what it wanted from this particular expansion process? Well, the NHL obviously has had a lot of experience in expanding because uh, it was originally a six-league team, a uh, six-team league, and it's now uh, you know got 31 teams in it. But most recently, you know, they expanded by four teams from 1998 to 2001. And in that time, or for that expansion, the NHL teams uh, were able to protect nine forwards, five defensemen, and two goaltenders, which meant that the expansion franchises were selecting fourth-line winger, fourth-line forwards, third-pairing defensemen, and goaltenders that weren't even playing in the National Hockey League. And when you looked at the results <laughs> that, that ensued, you know, of the four teams that, that the league expanded to buy, which were Minnesota, uh, Nashville, uh, Columbus, and Atlanta, uh, two of those teams had a very long and slow climb in, in Minnesota and Nashville. And the other two, uh, Atlanta and Columbus, one of them was mired in obscurity for well over 10 years, and the other didn't survive. You know, and Atlanta actually became the Winnipeg Jets. And this time around, I think it was incumbent upon the league uh, particularly given the fact that they were going to be putting a team in a very non-traditional market, uh, such as Vegas, where hockey is not an indigenous sport and many people uh, are not you know, native uh, or, or have been there for generations, uh, it was important that, that the team be as competitive as possible. And from that point, the, the expansion rules were, were, were altered significantly to, to give them a roster that would put them uh, that would make them as competitive as possible on a nightly basis. The you know, NHL teams were allowed to protect this time around only six forwards, three defensemen, and only one goaltender. But what really made it interesting was the fact that the NHL wanted to provide teams that were deep with defensemen the ability to protect an extra defenseman. And the adjustment that was made was that if teams made that election, they could protect eight skaters and one, one goaltender, which meant that an extra forward, extra two forwards were going to be exposed. And a good example of that was Nashville, who protected four defensemen and allowed uh, Las Vegas to select James Neal, mm. who has been uh, you know, a critical piece of, of Vegas' success. Now, I was going to say, what were the things that George McPhee took advantage of? You gave him, you gave him this template. What are the things, uh, point to a couple, you mentioned Neal, but point to a couple of others you might, that ways he exploited the process that you were able to give him. Well, he, 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 there were going to be various points along the way. Well, let me back up for a sec. There are going to be a number of teams that were going to try and utilize this uh, expansion process as a manner to get out of some of the problems that they found themselves in, whether that's because they had uh, salary cap issues, you know, they had, given, they had contracts that they wanted off the books, or they had players that had no movement clauses that need to be protected. And George was able to to exploit a timeline where, you know, it began really at the trade deadline where he was able to to negotiate a deal with the Pittsburgh Penguins, which enabled them to keep Marc-Andre Fleury for their playoff run, which ultimately ended in their Stanley Cup, uh, yet, yet, you know, made the agreement that Fleury would be the guy that Vegas took uh, for, for their for their uh, expansion selection. Made a similar deal, uh, I believe, with Columbus. 
where he took on Nathan Horton's contract and an agreement not to take uh, certain players, which enabled him to get William Carlson, who ended up scoring 41 goals for him. Um, you know, he cut a deal with uh, with the Florida Panthers to, you know, if he took Riley Smith, he would get Jonathan Marchessault, which was a, a tremendous, you know, had had a tremendous impact on their roster. And, you know, he, he systematically went from the trade deadline through to the submission of the expansion lists and cut deals across the league to take on bad contracts and, and injured players uh, and get assets along the way. And in addition to, to comprising a roster that's incredibly competitive, he, he harvested a boatload of, uh, of, of draft picks. And, you know, this last draft, he had thir- three picks in the first round, two of them in the top 15. I mean, he did a masterful job. I don't think, I don't think he could have, I don't think he left one asset on the table mm. for his the, franchise. The, the, this isn't something that, w- that was part of the draft philosophy that you guys gave him, but there is a sense out there that um, there is a collective uh, uh, among the team of, hey, we're reject guys that has enabled them to pull together as a team. Uh, do you put much stock in that? Well, I, th- I think what they did, and I don't, and I, and I haven't spoken to them about this specifically, but I think what they did was they looked, they didn't just look at who the play, they, they didn't just look at what the players brought to the ice, although they did look at it. In addition, they looked at who these players were and what made them tick, and what they were, what their psychology, uh, you know, what their psychological factors were. And I think that went a long way into comprising a, a group of players that that could work together. Uh, that had a con- that had the commonality of the fact that they were they were, you know, if you want to refer to them as rejects, and they they've adopted an us versus the world mentality that started from day one and has continued right down to the conference final. Yeah, and 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 some would say also that uh, for management uh, they don't have the accumulated weight of uh, bad contracts, uh, other things, disgruntled players from the previous years, etc., and that in some respects that is an advantage too in a salary cap league. Well, what they had, what, what the benefit that they had was they were able to start with a clean slate. Yeah. And they didn't have the benefit. You know, history, you know, having history can be a great thing. It can also be a burden because, you know, in the salary cap world, once you make a mistake, it's hard to get out of it unless you're prepared to pay to do so. And to the extent that they were able to, or the, to the extent that they do have any quote unquote bad contracts on the books, they were they were they were systematically uh, accumulated and did so, uh, you know, getting compensated for them, mm. you know, taking on Nathan Horton's uh, contract or taking on uh, Michael Grabowski uh, from from the New York Islanders. They got first round draft picks and they got players for, for their troubles. And, you know, it, as I said, it was a tremendous asset harvest to them. Yeah, I mean, well, the situation. I mean, we we can both recall what happened. The experience in Vancouver, of course, and how the the Roberto Luongo contract just hung over the entire organization's head like a sort of Damocles, uh, and and seemed to take on exaggerated importance with each passing day. And and that's something that Vegas has not had to do. No, they no, they've it's it's a, it's a new world for them, yeah. and they don't have the as I said, they don't have the history. Uh, they took on short-term problems, and you know they're 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 going to hit the next draft too with with a bunch of draft picks and mm-hmm. and you know they're the issue for them is going to be managing their expectations going forward because it's going to be hard for them, you know this is a tough league and it's hard to you know you look at how many teams made the playoffs last year that didn't this year, uh, <clears throat> you know and, and they came out of nowhere to get to this position, it's going to be a tough act to follow. In, in retrospect, were you too good to them? I don't think so. I, I think what, what I really think is that uh, he did a masterful, George McPhee did a masterful job 
uh, of getting in front of what could have been a redistribution of assets that should have occurred from general manager to general manager um, and, and before the expansion draft, where what I mean by that is, you know, the opportunity existed for these GMs to, to not just deal with Vegas, but to deal with their other counterparts and not lose guys to the expansion process, but to, to harvest assets on their own and by, by virtue of trading. And that just didn't occur. And I, that's why I think when the NHL expands the next time around, general managers of the other teams are going to be a lot wiser in terms of their, their behavior and how they comport themselves in advance of the expansion draft. And it's going to be a lot harder for the next expansion team. Mm. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode, hockey executive, media analyst Lawrence Gilman, who, as we have been discussing, also a key guy in terms of the uh, Vegas Golden Knights and the process they went through in acquiring their talent. Let, let, let's talk about some other stuff that's happening in the playoffs. Some were surprised that the Penguins lost. Uh, others say it was inevitable. Is it getting too hard to play all those extra games over an extended playoff run year after year for even a quality team and still survive? Well, there's no doubt that there's a cumulative toll that takes place from the number of games that the players on teams like Pittsburgh or Chicago, for that matter, have played. You know, when you start adding up all the playoff games and, and you know, to win the Stanley Cup is a two month marathon where you're fighting a war every second night uh, and, and, you know, it, it takes its toll physically, it takes its toll mentally. But then when you when you layer on top of that, things that occurred like the World Cup of Hockey that all these star players played in. Um, you're looking at, at you know, the addition, essentially, of, of, of a couple of seasons or two. And it's not surprising to me that at some point along the way, <coughs> there, there's, a, excuse me, there's a toll that gets extracted and that the players are, if not physically worn out, they're mentally worn out. And it's, it's not surprising that, you know, Pittsburgh didn't win the Stanley Cup for the third period in, in a third time in a row. That being said, you got to give credit to the Washington Capitals because yep. they're a heck of a hockey club and they could wind up winning the Stanley Cup as well. So it's not like Pittsburgh got uh, got upset in the first round by by an eight seed or something like that. I mean, they they lost a tough tough series, and you know these things happen. I have no doubt though that they're going to be back uh, and as formidable as as they have been in the past. Yeah, and as you can remember from the 2011 example, once again, I think you started in the fall of 2011 with at least three of your starters who had been injured in the playoffs, unable to start the season. So, uh, you know, there's all sorts of, of carryover effects for a long run for a team, uh, even if you only make it a couple of times. The injury, and I, I guess it's one of the points, too, that's, that's worth noting of the four teams who are remaining is, by and large, they all seem healthy at the moment. Uh, I can think of, again, the Canucks team. I also think of the Flames team in 04 and some other who just who ran out of healthy bodies but all of these teams seem to be fairly have their guys all in place and that is, is good for the fan because I guess we're going to see the best hockey well that's for sure and you know I learned one of the lessons I learned in 2011 is that it isn't the best team that wins the Stanley Cup in each year it's the team that's playing the best at that time and by that I mean you know whether they stay healthy you know what their goaltending is like how much uh, you know, how the officiating goes. Does it go in your favor or does it go against your favor? And then it comes down to plain old puck luck. You know, sometimes you hit a goal post at the wrong time. Mm. Sometimes your opponent, uh, <coughs> you know, hits a goal post and gets a lucky bounce. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it, but injuries are clearly, you know, one of the, one of the larger ones. Mm. 
Uh, I wrote a, cra a crabby column recently saying we seem to have forgotten about all the obstruction and interference rules that were phased out after the last lockout. We had a lot of uh, celebration at that point about the game had been freed up. It seems to me watching that we are back into the age of obstruction and interference again, or, or, or am I just being a crab? Well, I think you're just being a crab. <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I, what, the, the, these games are hard to officiate. You know, it, it, the, the level of intensity rises significantly in the playoffs. And, and I think as, as, as human nature goes, I don't think the officials want to determine the outcomes of games. Uh, and I think what you see, particularly toward the latter part of playoff games, are, are non-calls because an official doesn't want to put a team in a, in a you know, in a shorthanded situation late in the game when the score is tied and it's a, you know, it could be a, a deciding game in a series. I think by and large, the games have been pretty good. Like coming through the first two rounds, like this has been one of the most entertaining second rounds that I've seen in my tenure uh, in a long, long time. Uh, as I said, I think it's a hard, it's a hard game to officiate. And, and I think that, uh, the games have been generally well officiated. Yeah. I, I, I don't mean specifically just to, to, to these playoffs, but the idea of obstruction, we, we had, we'd gone all the way so that a forward would flip the puck in and the defenseman would not be able to impede him in any way. And it seems to me now that we have defensemen able to impede again. Uh, we seem to have people, you know, Ken Dryden complains about being able to hit somebody two, two beats after he's released the puck on the boards, etc. that we seem to have gotten back to that again. And I, I, I'm not blaming referees. Uh, I, they do what they're told to do. But it just seems to me like we've regressed a little bit in terms of the obstruction and the interference stuff that, that we, we were making some progress on. Well, it's, it's become a game of speed and skill. And you have guys that are, that are far more fit than they've ever been uh, historically in the game that are moving at, at, at a, a very, very high pace. And you know, particularly when you look at a team like Las Vegas, for example, that isn't just quick in terms of their speed. <clears throat> excuse me, but they're quick in terms of how they move the puck. Mm. And when that happens, players get turned around and there's, there's tends to be a lot more body contact. And, um, you know, I, I guess at the end of the day, I don't really share your opinion in terms of how much, you know, the, the you know, I don't see a lot of hooking and holding. I, I do see, um, you know, there's a lot of physicality and there's a lot of, you know, you're seeing a lot of players that are getting hurt, particularly with headshots. Um, but I, and I think that's just a function of how fast this game is being played at this point. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll agree. <laughs> agree to do. I'm not concerned so much about the hooking and that type of thing or holding. I'm just more the, as I say, the kind of casual interference of getting in the way of a guy skating in a, in a straight line or whatever. But eh. I'm not going to win that argument, so I'll move on to my next one. Uh, the NHL is, uh, as you know, of course, having been around as a copycat league. What, what lessons will teams be drawing from the successful clubs this year? What are we going to be hearing next fall that, that they're imitating? Speed, speed, speed. It's all going to be about quickness. You know, mm -hmm. you look at the teams that are that are, are left playing, uh, particularly two, two of note, which would be Vegas again that we've spoken about, and Tampa. The game is all about speed and moving the cup, the puck quickly. You know, there was a, you know, when the, when the Bruins won in 2011, it was about being big and heavy and, and, and having big forwards that, that can wear down the opposing defense. And the LA Kings were a great example of that. They were constructed as a big bruising team that wore teams down. Uh, but I think that that changed <coughs> quite honestly. I think it changed with the Pittsburgh Penguins when they won the cup uh, most recently in the, the first time around. They won it with a, with a team that played a puck possession game. They didn't have, you know, what would traditionally be considered uh, an NHL Stanley Cup defense. 
they, but they had defensemen that were active and they joined the rush and they were up the ice the whole time. And I think that's the future of the game. I think it's the present of the game. I think it's going to be the way the game is played and teams are going to be constructed going forward. Mm. Uh, let, let, let's finish up where we started. Just we, we mentioned about Winnipeg. Uh, you and I both know 1993, the last time the Canadians won, the last time a Canadian-based franchise. Is is this just random luck that a Canadian team hasn't won, or are there factors that make it harder to win in Canada? Well, I, I think the 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 scrutiny on the group and the pressure on Canadian teams come playoffs is significant. Uh, it is, you know, it, it is. I can tell you from my own experience in 2011 that the 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 onslaught uh, the coverage is is immense. Uh, I think that it's a factor to some point uh, at some at some level, uh, and it's a big 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 deal in this country to win the Stanley Cup. And I think the pressure that teams feel, players and coaches and, and managers and owners, uh, you know, you're bearing you're you're carrying the mantle on behalf of 35 million people. I think that that adds something to. The, the, the difficulty uh, to get the job done that doesn't really exist at the same level in the United States. So I, I think it's at play somewhere, uh, but I think there's also some luck involved. Um, you know, there have been times where, you know, Calgary could have just as easily won in uh, 2004 when Tampa won. The Edmonton Oilers, you know, got to game seven. They, things could have gone their way. We lost in game seven in 2011. I mean, fortune, you know, a, 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 a a bounce here or there for any one of those teams, and the the uh, cup could have been uh, on Canadian soil at any one of those points in time. Yeah, it, it, it would be nice to see. And as I said earlier, there's no there's no city quite so Canadian as as Winnipeg, and a reward for them would be, uh, I think, would be poetic justice. Uh, so, uh, just any sense of what, what you what you're up to now? Uh, tell us what you're doing with yourself. Well, aside from my uh, my weekly radio gig, which has been a lot more fun than I actually anticipated it would be when I started, yeah. uh, I, I have had some opportunities to uh, join NHL front offices. Uh, but you know, at this stage in my career, uh, who I work for and who I work with is as important uh, as as anything else, and I haven't found a fit yet. Uh, but I'm looking at some other ventures in, in the hockey world and. We'll see what happens. I think there's going to be something coming up for me in the uh, not-too-distant future. Well, as, as your friend and as somebody who's written and covered uh, you over the years, I, I hope for all the best for you, Lawrence, uh, and, and I know you'll do a good job, whatever you do. And thanks for joining us here on The Full Count. Well, thanks, Bruce. I appreciate it. You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode has been hockey executive and media analyst Lawrence Gilman. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count and all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns, my podcasts, and my poetry on the website. I'm also now appearing twice a week on Sirius XM Channel 167, Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time, Mondays and Fridays. I'll post those conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page. Till the next time, this is Bruce Dobigan. And remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count. Your fat bum around, round, round.